in Act 3, Scene 1 of William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, the Roman dictator Julius Caesar, at the moment of his assassination, he turns to his friend Marcus Brutus. And upon recognizing Brutus as one of the assassins, Julius Caesar then utters those now famous words, which are what? Very good. Et tu, Brute? Which means what? You too, Brutus? You too, Brutus? Today, that phrase has become a well-known expression for when someone is betrayed, right? Et tu, Brute? Now, you, you don't have to say it out loud, but to start this morning, I want to ask if you've ever had, if we could call it an a to brute moment in your life. Have you ever had the experience, indeed the painful experience, of being betrayed? Perhaps by a coworker or a close friend? Maybe by a family member or a spouse? Have you ever known that experience where someone betrayed your confidence or then suddenly turned against you? Someone that you thought and someone that you had trusted? Someone you thought that was for you? But instead they ended up hurting you in what is arguably the deepest way? Have you ever known that? It's painful, isn't it? And indeed, it's often very hard to recover from that sense of betrayal. I bring this to your attention because in our passage this morning, we're going to learn and we're going to see that David, God's true anointed king, in this text, he's betrayed twice. As we've discussed previously, as we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, David is in a wilderness period, literally and metaphorically. He's experiencing hardships. He's experiencing difficulty. And one of the difficulties that he encounters in 1 Samuel 23 is the painful experience of being betrayed. And just like when David was fleeing from Saul and Gath, and when he was hiding in the cave of Adullam, Faith, during this season of betrayal, David wrote a psalm. And you know what psalm it is? It's Psalm 54. That psalm was written when David was experiencing the hardships of our text this morning, 1 Samuel 23, and in particular, that unique pain of being betrayed. And in Psalm 54, we learn something very valuable from David. Something that can help us when we ourselves are suffering that similar pain of betrayal or the hardships, you could say, of living in the wilderness. You see, faith, in the face of such human treachery, 
David bears witness that, and I'm quoting here, I'm quoting him here, quote, that God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. This is the testimony of David in Psalm 54, 4. While David is going through this dark season of life, this painful season of life, he bears witness and testifies to this truth that God is my helper, that the Lord, in the midst of the difficulty, is the upholder of my life. And faith, here is the valuable lesson that I think we're going to learn as we combine the testimony of David from Psalm 54 with the experience we're about to read in 1 Samuel 23, and that is this. Here is the valuable truth that I believe Scripture testifies that can help us in seasons of suffering and betrayal, and that is this. For the Christian, dark times always include the shadow of the Almighty. For the Christian, dark, difficult seasons, when there appears to be no light, Christian, remember, part of the darkness is you being covered by the shadow of the Almighty. Faith, as we've talked about previously, we are living in a wilderness period. This means we will experience hardships we will experience, and I hate to say it, even at times, betrayal. Remember what we learned a couple weeks ago, how the pattern for the Christian life is suffering now, glory later. This world is not our home. No, we're sojourners on our way to the celestial city. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have moments of pleasure and joy and comfort here on earth. Of course we do. But we have to remind ourselves, wilderness now, glory later. And in the wilderness, we're going to get poked with thorns and thistles. We're going to fall down and get bruised. We will encounter dark times. Yet I want to encourage you, Christian, that no matter how dark your experience might be, as Christians, we must always remember that part of the darkness is the shadow of the Almighty. This is to say we are always under the watchful care of our Lord. Amen? And it's important to note that what I have just articulated is for Christians only. This is why the main idea here I have pasted in yellow on the screen behind me says, for the Christian." No matter how hard it is, you are always under the watchful care and the shadow of the Almighty. This is not the case for the unbeliever. For the Christian, please hear me, this world in all its difficulties are as close to hell as you will ever get. And for the unbeliever, this world and its fleeting joys are as close as you'll ever get to heaven. And friend, if that does not depress you and cause you to pause for a moment to think, then nothing will. This world in its fallen state 
is as close as you'll ever get to heaven, but oh, what joys await the person who puts their trust in Christ. And what we see here in 1 Samuel 23, friend, are three resources that God makes available to his servants while they are under his shadow. Our passage this morning demonstrates how God is a helper and upholder to his people in the midst of trials and betrayal. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23. I'd encourage you to grab that paperback Bible underneath the seat in front of you, as Basil mentioned. That's going to be on page 245. And as I said, there are three things, three resources God makes available to his people while under the shadow of his wing. And the first thing we learn is this, is that in dark times, God provides his people with divine access, divine access to himself. So let me just cut you up to speed before we read 1 Samuel 23. In the previous section, we saw Saul acting like an antichrist, right? First John tells us that there is a coming antichrist with a capital A, but that already many antichrists have come, little a's, those who oppose God and his people. And Saul, through Doeg the Edomite, enacted slaughter on almost an entire village of God's people, yet one, Abiathar, who was a priest, escaped, and he fled to David. And so we pick up the narrative now in verse 1 of chapter 23. We read this. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Hiela and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. When the text says that David inquired of the Lord, if we're reading our Bibles carefully and we're reading it within the context of 1 Samuel we know that involves other people. In particular, it means it involves the priests. Think back to 1 Samuel 14.37. The text uses the same language. This time Saul inquired of the Lord, and he did so through the priests. So as we're reading this section, it is implied that Abiathar... The priest is there with him as he's inquiring of the Lord. And as we're going to see in a couple moments here, Abiathar has something very important, and that's the ephod, which is used throughout Scripture as a means of getting direct revelation from God. So David's inquiring of the Lord. We know from the text before and after that this means it's inviting the priest. So he inquires of the Lord, and God answers him to go and attack the Philistines and to save Keilah. Now, that sounds great, but notice David's, the men of David, their response. Verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? 
Then David inquired of the Lord again. The Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. The ephod was part of the garments for the priest. It had some special stones on there. And we, we see throughout the Old Testament that that was used, as I mentioned, to receive direct revelation from God. Verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul's thinking, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. How great for me, I can finally get David. Verse 8, and Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Now think about this for a moment. David, at great risk to himself and his men, just saved the city. You would think that they would be abundantly grateful to him. But now notice what we hear, what's going to happen to them. Verse 12, Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Wanting to know, what's their intentions? What would they do with me? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go, when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Amen. Amen. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever forgotten your password to some online account? <laughs> it sounds like you have. Be it your bank, email, or some retail store, have you? I think we all have, right? And typically, after a couple of failed attempts, you get an option to receive a link to reset your password so you can then access the said website, right? You know what I'm talking about? I've done that many times. <laughs> and then I type in the password, and I said, you can't use your previous password. Anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> but has this ever happened? But what if you never get an option to reset your password? What if you only get a certain number of tries and then you are permanently blocked out? Welcome to the dilemma facing Stefan Thomas. T 
Thomas is a German-born programmer who lives in San Francisco. Thomas, hear me, has a Bitcoin account worth over $220 million. But get this, he can't remember his password. You see, Thomas lost the paper where he wrote down the password for his iron key, which gives users 10 guesses before it seizes up and encrypts its content forever. Thomas has already tried eight of his most commonly used password formulations, but to no avail. So as of the moment I'm saying this to you right now, he has just two guesses left. Thomas and several others were recently featured in a New York Times article entitled, Lost Passwords Lock Millionaires Out of Their Bitcoin Fortunes. And in the article, Thomas laments this. He says, I would just lay in bed and think about it. Then I would go to the computer with some new strategy, and it wouldn't work, and I would be desperate again. Because he can't remember the correct password, he is denied access to a fortune over 220 million. Can you imagine? Something he needs, something he wants, but he doesn't have access to. Notice in the passage I just read, David inquires of the Lord twice about whether or not he should go and fight off the Philistines. Both time, the Lord answered David. So David, he acted on that guidance and was victorious. Then he asks if he should stay or should he go. And again, the Lord answers him. Yet, friend, you have to understand the primary emphasis of this passage is not that God gave David guidance but the means by which God guided David, and that is through the Lord's appointed priest. Indeed, as many commentators have pointed out, the text goes out of its way to make this point. The first 13 verses of this chapter form a chiasm that places Abiathar and the ephod in the very center of this section. You see, this opening, the opening verses of chapter 23 they're presenting a contrast, and here's the contrast. Unlike Saul, David has access to the Lord and the Lord's guidance through the appointed priest. This passage is primarily about divine access. David has it, Saul does not. Yet, friend, such access to God is not limited to just David. While it is correct that we are not David in the story, the truth is that through faith in the one whom David pointed to, Jesus Christ, we have access to something far greater than a $220 million Bitcoin fortune, and that is we have access to the one true and living God. Amen? We have access to the God of the universe. And consider for a moment, in what context was the Lord's guidance given? Was it not in access to God through the appointed priest? 
And Christian, is that not the same privilege we all enjoy through a much greater priest than Abiathar, the Lord Jesus Christ? For after all, what does Hebrews 4 mean if it means anything at all? Does it not mean this? Hear these words from the author of Hebrews and consider their relevance within the context of suffering and temptation. The author of Hebrews writes this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then here's the exhortation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what Christians need when they feel betrayed? You know what Christians need when they're suffering and experiencing dark times? You know what Christians long for in their pain? Mercy and grace. And that is precisely what Christ gives his own in their time of need. This is why we're exhorted to draw near the throne of grace in our time of need. For we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who empathizes with our weaknesses. Friend, have you been betrayed? You know who else was betrayed? Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God in his word promises to his people to provide grace and mercy in our time of need as well as we are enduring difficulty. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. We have a high priest who hears our prayers. And here's my my question, my application question to you this morning. Okay, Christian? Are you taking advantage of this access? Or are you acting like Thomas, one who has forgotten the password? And you're leaving the fortune and the wealth of access to the living God unused. How is your prayer life? How is your communion with God? The hymn writer captured it best, didn't he, when he wrote, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry what? Everything to God in prayer. David received the guidance. He received the help. He received the grace needed in this moment through the priest in the ephod Abiathar. And we have a far greater priest who stands ready to help us in our time of need. Christian, will we experience dark seasons? Yes. But let us always remember that part of that darkness is the shadow of the Almighty. And through Jesus, we have access to grace and mercy in our time of need, just like David did in this text. Second, I want to point out how 
as our helper, God provides his people with divine encouragement. Look at this next section, verse 14. So David saves this town. Saul thinks he's a sitting duck. He inquires of the Lord through the priest. God meets him where he's at, provides what he needs, grace and mercy and wisdom. David leaves, and we read this in, in beginning in verse 14, and David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Notice, Saul can't find David, but Jonathan can. Verse 17, And he said to him, Do not fear, this is Jonathan speaking to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. When Jonathan is saying to David, you shall be king, you know what he's doing? He's reminding David of the promises of God. In David's time of need, Jonathan goes to provide encouragement, and the encouragement he gives is the promise of God. Verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained in Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This past week, I took my boys up to Columbus to see the Chicago Blackhawks play the Columbus Blue Jackets. And it was a great time. The Blackhawks won in overtime. Tears of joy were shed when that happened. There are lots of good memories. Well, the following morning, I'm like, well, let's make it a school day, kids. So we made it a school day. And we visited the museum, the Central Ohio Fire Museum. And it was quite fascinating. This museum, this was a museum dedicated to chronicling the development of firefighting. Well, shortly into our tour, the tour guide made a statement that really stood out to me. He said this. He said, back in 1825... Every resident of Columbus was a firefighter. See, at that time, every home had a small bucket, and it's the same small bucket. I have a picture of it here. There are my boys. My son Daniel, the one on the far left, he's holding the bucket. Every home at that time had a bucket, just like my, brother, my son Daniel is holding. Yet you'll also notice that my two other boys are holding something in their hands. And although those wooden instruments look small, they actually make a very big noise. They are the alarm to let everyone know that there is a fire. You see, back in 1825, whenever someone sounded that alarm, hear me, everyone stopped what they were doing in order to form a line down to the river so that they could bring water to the house in need. Everyone was a firefighter. Notice, although David may have escaped Saul, he never escapes the shelter of the Most High. Because as verse 14 makes clear, 
Though Saul sought David continually, God did not give David into his hand. Yet if Saul did not, did not find David, Jonathan did. And notice, as we mentioned, how did Jonathan encourage David? Well, what does Jonathan say there in verse 17? Have your eyes fall there. Jonathan reaffirms God's promise to David. This is to say Jonathan encourages David with God's word. Dale Ralph Davis makes this helpful insight and how this can apply to us today as God's people. He says this, Of course, Jonathan's presence itself would have been a great comfort and refreshment for David. Yet our personal presence does not have the abiding encouragement that God's sure word does. We best encourage not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. And he goes on to say this, I'm not depreciating the helpfulness of the personal touch or care, but in an age that wallows in caring and sensitivity on every hand, believers need to know that solid encouragement comes not from emotional closeness, but from God's speech. You see, faith, in many ways, as the church, we all too are called to be firefighters. Like those in 1825, we are called to bring the living water of God's word to those who are experiencing, please hear me, the fire of suffering or temptation. Indeed, as the church, we are to form a bucket brigade, if you will, of bringing the life-giving water of God's word to our brothers and sisters who are struggling. Do we believe God is who he says he is? Do we believe he is the almighty, majestic, sovereign, wise, king, creator of the universe? If so, then we know our words fall short, but his words are eternal and are needed. And as the church, we're called to bring his speech, his life-giving word to our brothers and sisters who are struggling. In fact, Christian, what would it look like for you to be intentional every Sunday when we gather and every time you gather in your small group in bringing encouragement from God's word to your fellow Christians? Actually, here's a better question. How could you grow in this way? How can I grow in this way? What would we need to do to speak the promises of God to those in this church? And what would we need to do to be the type of people who are ready to receive it? Do we, in our times of suffering and temptation, realize that the word we need the most is not man's wisdom, but God's? that the promises we need the most are not, it will get better, but God is with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. How can we be like this? John Piper hits the nail on the head when he writes this. He says, 
the strength we are to give each other is strength in God, not in ourselves. Verse 16 does not say that Jonathan came all that way to Horesh to strengthen David's self-confidence. He didn't. It says he rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in who? God. He goes on. This is the difference between Christian camaraderie and all other support groups and therapy groups and self-help groups. The whole point of Christian camaraderie is to point each other to Christ, not man, for help and strength. Faith, God, through his word, provides divine encouragement to his people who are suffering. Let us be like those firefighters and be found faithful to give that living water to one another. I think just way by application, those residents in 1825, they could not be of help if they didn't know where the water was. And you're not going to be of help to bring the living water of God's word to others if you yourself are unfamiliar with it. If you yourself are not soaking your soul and dousing dousing it with the truth yourself. And then finally I wanted to see, I want you to see that in this text God provides his people with divine providence. Look at how this chapter ends. It's kind of a nail biter. Let me read this. So David was first betrayed once by a town's group. He's hiding in Ziph, and notice what the Ziphites do. Verse 19, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding from among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hekilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now notice what he says. Go and make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Notice the difference between Saul and David. David seeks information through the Lord. Saul is seeking information through the wisdom of man. He goes on. Once you give me this information, Saul says, he then says, then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. 
Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Do you get the picture here? And David was hurrying to get away from Saul and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Can you imagine? He's on one side of the mountain, they're closing in. It's that scene in every movie, right? They're running away, goes back to the pursuers, running away, and the, and the gap keeps getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And we're reading this and we're thinking, it's the end for David. But notice the very next verse. 27, a messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Amen. Alexander Payden was a Scottish covenanter who lived from 1826 to 1886. And this was during a season where he lived of intense religious persecution. And once, when Payton and some of his friends, Christians, were being pursued by persecutors who were soldiers on foot and horse, after, after Payton had gained some distance and he took a, a needed breather and a prayer, and he prayed this. It's a great prayer. As these men were pursuing him to persecute him, Payton prayed, O Lord, hast thou no other work for them than to send after us? And almost immediately, the Lord answered with a cloud of mist between them and their persecutors. I love that prayer. He's being pursued, hunted down, and goes, oh Lord, is there nothing else for them to do than to pursue after us? And notice, David is in a similar situation. Like Paden, God did have other work for David's pursuers to do. So a messenger came to Saul, and as a result, David and his men escaped. And notice, tell me, who is it that saves the day for David and his men? The Philistines. Of all people, don't miss the irony that the author is trying to get us to understand here. At the start of the chapter, the Philistines are the enemy. Now here at the end of the chapter, they're the Savior. And friend, I want to argue, this is God's providence on full display. And Christian, I want to argue that this is not for David only. I mean, how many of you have similar stories about how God used the most unlikely of people in the most strange timing so as to bring God glory and you good? Is it only in the pages of the Bible that God's providence works? No. And here's the takeaway that I want to leave you with, Christian. I think this closing episode in chapter 23 is illustrative of the fact that Christian, no matter how hard or dark your situation might be right now, you have to know that God is at work. He is at work for your good and his glories, oftentimes in ways that are unseen. 
And I also just need to press in here a little bit more and let you know, God's plan primarily is not our relief, but our redemption. Because notice, is Saul gone for good out of David's life? No. Is David's distress finally over? Has relief finally arrived for David? No. Yet David still declares, according to Psalm 54, that the Lord is his helper. And faith, 1 Samuel 23, shows us what kind of resources the Lord gives his people to withstand such dark seasons of life. Friend, you, in Christ, you have divine access to God to receive the mercy and grace you need in your time of need. He has given you encouragement in his word. And as this passage reminds us, he is providentially at work in our lives for his glory and our good. May we boldly approach the throne of grace so that we might find mercy and grace in our time of need. Amen? Let's pray.